The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I N go on your Bloomberg terminal. That brings up the Bloomberg Index browser. It gives you all the total returns uh, on a year-to-date basis for a lot of the fixed income aggregates. The U- All right, so look at this, folks. The Bloomberg U.S. Uh, aggregate fixed income return year to date minus 14.35 percent yikes that's 60 40 portfolio that ain't working for you this year alfonso pecatello author and former head of fixed income portfolio manager at ing deutschland he joins us here uh alfonso thanks so much for taking the time here boy it has been a brutal year for fixed income investors nowhere to hide what do you make of it you've been doing this for a long time what do you make of this well, what I make of this is that basically central banks tried to warn us that they were very serious about fighting inflation, but the bond market didn't want to listen at first. And they just had to double down to make sure that everybody understands it. This is not like 2018 or 19, where you know they can basically uh, tighten a little bit and make sure that they are respected by markets because inflation and inflation expectations went out of control. Their reaction function is not linear anymore. In, they need to get ahead of the curve. And that's what they're trying to do now, which obviously hits the bond market. Alfonso, I'm looking at the volatility across treasuries, and we're at a stage or at a height that's even greater than what we saw in this kind of crunch moments of the pandemic, where none of us knew what was going to happen. And what I'm struggling to understand is, why is this market struggling to price in the future path in terms of recession, in terms of where policymakers go next? Aren't things more certain now than they were in that early pandemic era? This is a, such a great point. And the problem with this is that central bankers told us they're going to be pretty mechanical. So I'm going to quote Powell. Basically, he told us that he wants to have a real Fed funds rate, at least in the 1% positive area before he feels relatively satisfied with his stance. And that means that even if inflation slows down a little bit, and we all hope that next year, that Fed funds rate will have to be in the four and a half, five percent area. Now, if inflation doesn't slow down on the other hand, that means that mechanically, the Federal Reserve to preserve their credibility will need to have nominal Fed funds rate even higher than that. So when you price volatility as a bond trader, obviously you'll have to look at both uh, the right end and the left end of your distribution And at the moment, because of recession risks, the left end is open, but the right end is also open because if inflation doesn't slow down, then central banks will just mechanically keep hiking rates. The last point I have is that higher bond volatility actually deters investors from taking risks in other asset classes. The bond market is the biggest market in the world, the most liquid and deep. And if people can't figure out and they have to price volatility so wide in the most liquid assets of all, how can they take risks when it comes to riskier asset classes. And that also has implications for equities and credit spreads, which are widening indeed. Alfonso, one of the things we we hear about when we talk to fixed income folks, particularly on on the trading side, is poor liquidity in the marketplace. Could you define what 
that means to you and, and maybe how it, the practical implications day to day for investors? So how I would define that is if you're a market practitioner, if you try to trade anywhere above 100 to 200 million of 10 year treasuries, you would have bid ask quotes, which are much wider than you know what you're used to be you used to have in the past so when you have that kind of bid ask spreads that tend to widen in the most liquid market of all it's a sign that the plumbing is not really working well and the, for plumbing i refer to the ability of market makers to warehouse risk and this ability was crippled from the great financial crisis the post great financial crisis regulation which effectively made it much more capital expensive and inefficient for market makers to provide liquidity to such a market but the real underlying problems actually happen when the repo market doesn't work, because most of this balance sheet, the risk, the risk taking ability out of market makers and hedge funds actually happens to be balance sheet heavy. So there are repo transactions underlying the ability to provide liquidity. If the repo market shows some sign of stress, you immediately see that in the treasury market right now. That's really not the case yet. It also has to do with some facilities the Federal Reserve set up, like the standard repo facility, but it is definitely something to have a look at. I want to look at some other corners of the market, Europe, corporate bonds. September is kind of classically, I believe, a great month for the bond market. This year, it's not. Why? Well, this year is not because we saw uh, an acceleration of inflation, both in Europe and in the US. And when I mean acceleration, guys, it is not only the level of inflation, which is undoubtedly very high, but it's the momentum and the, the composition of these inflationary pressures, which is interesting. If you look at the moving average of core inflation, X energy, so I'm looking like at the momentum of the stickiest part of the inflationary basket, the one that central bankers are the most worried about because they're tough to bring yeah. down. They're actually accelerating both in the US and in Europe to levels last seen in momentum terms in the 80s. So no wonder right. that actually they have to tighten the stance, which hits the bond market further. All right, Alfonso, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and your perspective. Alfonso Pecatiello, author and former head of fixed income portfolio management at ING Deutschland. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Looking at the shares of Nike, down about 10.5% today, $85 and change uh, on a year-to-date basis down almost 50% here. So, uh, and they reported some numbers today that disappointed Wall Street. Let's get the latest uh, with Bloomberg's Abigail Doolittle. Abigail, I guess they got like a lot of other retailers, they got an inventory problem. They do. Uh, North American inventories up 65%. Overall global inventories up more than 40%. And what's interesting about this is a piece of it has to do with the supply chain kinks because they can't get what they have had made abroad where they need to get it on time. By the time it gets to where it it's needed it's out of season and it sort of rots like bad food so uh, yeah bloated inventories like so many other 
uh, companies and retailers. So that led to a miss. It med- led to them cutting the outlook. Uh, gross margins are a real big problem. They're now going to be 200 to 250 basis points uh, lower than expected. But it's not just the inventories. It's also those higher freight, the freight issues, but the higher freight costs. And of course, foreign exchange. Yeah, they had the kind of full potion cauldron of problems, right? Yes. And it's interesting. I'm looking at some of the other stocks in the market, their peers, Lululemon, for example, some of the shoemakers also lower. It's not getting better, is it? It's not getting better. And the sense that I get from this quarter, because the miss actually wasn't that bad. They actually beat on sales, sales 3% better than estimates, and the earnings miss uh, by less than 1%. Again, it's more uh, the outlook. First of all, China was very weak because of the continued uh, COVID outlook. But I, my sense is that there's not so much of a weak U.S. consumer factored in here right. yet. It has more to do with these other issues. So if we are stumbling into some sort of a true recession. I think we can all agree that on some level the economy is slowing. It could really be a, a strong issue when you put it together with the these other factors. And what I've learned from you know reading the research of like Poonam Goyle from Bloomberg Intelligence, for example, is when you got extra inventory in the pipeline, it's not like you just kind of keep there and I'll sell it next year. You got to blow it out. You got to blow it out. And the way you do it yeah. is you discount. Massive that's, discounting. Well, I will the admit, the first time I was reading these discounts, as I told you, I, right. I'm, I'm in the, the market for some new golf clothing. I was thinking, oh, nice. maybe I can. Uh, here we go. <laughs> but you know what? The one thing I will say is, so we heard this, we've heard this story so many times, but we heard it in big time earlier this year, probably the real, uh, the, the, the big company that started all this target, yep. yes. I went to those stores and I didn't find any of the good deals. Right. So I'm thinking that maybe some of the inventory problems are more regional, uh, but I'm still going to try relative to Nike. Something relative to the stock though, to think about. So as you were mentioning, Paul, it yep. is down uh, 50% on the year, the worst year ever. The valuation is still sky high. The, they're trading at a PE of 24 times forward. That is uh, at the high end of the two-year range, and it's also above the mean of 18 point times for the rest of the group. Right. And it's also high for all the other evaluation metrics. So you could make the case that fundamentally and technically, this stock has more to go. To well, it's also high to most of the NASDAQ 100 and yeah. some of the stretch chip yeah, stocks that absolutely. I've covered day to day. It's absolutely. actually astonishing to see that stat. John Furrow is walking behind us. He made the point earlier that actually another inventory issue you go onto the website you can't get the thing that you want anyway and that speaks to the shipment issues but you love golf i love football european football soccer Soccer. do you out there (laughs) we have a world cup here and you do wonder if that event that catalyst helps a company like, like nike later on in the year well, if it could, if they can make the product that is appealing to you and to right. John and to other folks, and then if they can actually get it to you, if you can order it and buy it. I mean, to have these supply chain kinks, I remember uh, these sorts of issues back in the two th- early 2000 area that their bear market unrelated to uh, this sort of factor. It was actually more about uh, fashion wrong. So companies would make the, fa- you know, whatever the style was and then folks didn't want it. So it would kind of sit there and they would have to discount it. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not they'll be able to take advantage of it that could that could be a nice opportunity for them to kind of come out of this hole all right so ed you mentioned yes. the world cup english fans n- notably are good they travel well they do travel well team. are they going to go to cutter it's really interesting there are lots of moral cultural issues football fans i would say tend to look past those Qatar is an expensive place to go at the best of times if you're if you're a UK football fan. Remember also Wales are in that group as well. Yes. I'm proudly Welsh and oh, I'm looking are. forward Good to that you. showdown with United States and Iran. Um, 
Do they travel? I have no idea, but. They can drink, I think now I saw news, not 24 hours a day, but maybe like 18 or 19 hours a day. They can, but only in like selected places. I mean, football fans like that they're, adult beverage of choice they do and also how big a factor is the pound right now if mm. you i mean i'm hoping to go home in december for for the holiday period and as a somebody that draws a salary in dollars you know it's not right. so bad for me but for my family it's tough woof, yeah. yeah well it's interesting you're saying that because i've been thinking about planning a trip and somebody was saying well you should go to europe you know because yeah. it's on sale Yep. Um, so same thing with the UK. You know, looking at these Nike numbers, it kind of it, it makes me think about it. And, and whenever we have these earnings issues, it kind of goes to show you that the earnings risk in this market, I think, is still there. I oh, mean, 100%. I, can't, I think it's... It's you know, just starting. Yeah. And I just yes. wonder how much, you know, earnings are going to come down in this period. Are, are companies going to kind of really throw in the kitchen sink? And, and if so... This market can't really make a bottom until we get through that. Yeah, that, I think like. that that's a great point. And to go back to that 2000 to 2003 time period, that was just a long, slow move lower for earnings and companies not being able to manage expectations and having to cut quarter after quarter after quarter. Like the kitchen sink really didn't yeah. exist at that point. So now you see a company trying to do this, but can it get worse than this? Absolutely. If the well, US consumer slows down. Earnings expectations are coming down, but in a recession, historically, looking at the data, they get a mega reset, right? Ten to 20% depending on the sector. Right. Has that happened yet? No, absolutely not. And the other thing is, this is a recession that will also come against with the Fed raising. I mean, I think a lot of people are, I saw something about like the Fed put is coming back soon because it's, uh, that personally, I don't agree with that. I think that every single um, Fed official and all, you know, if you look at the dot plot, the average year-end rate, Fed funds rate for uh, the median Fed is 437. WARP has it at 420. That's a 17 bip difference between what the Fed is saying and what the markets are saying. If the Fed's serious, even just this year, there's some catch up. So to have that kind of liquidity pressure uh, in addition to the fundamental slowdown, it's just, it's something we haven't seen. I mean, I guess we sort of saw it in the early 80s. I don't remember right. it, but. Right, okay. I wasn't right. there. Yeah, you I was there. there. I was very small. Early 80s were very good for me. Thank you very much. All right, Abigail Doolittle, thank you so much. We appreciate it. She covers all things markets for Bloomberg uh, Radio and Television. Let's talk geopolitics as we talk about these markets, because, boy, there's a lot going on in the world with Russia and Ukraine and so on. We can do that with Nick Statmiller, director of Emerging Markets at Medley Global Advisors. So, Nick, I mean, emerging markets at a time when interest rates are rising, we've got geopolitical issues like we haven't seen since World War II in Europe. How does that factor into what you guys do in your emerging market work there? Well, you know, one observation I've heard from a lot of uh, a lot of our clients is that they feel like geopolitics is more relevant for the market now than it has been at any time in the last 30 years, going back to the first Gulf War. So it obviously takes up a lot more of our bandwidth. And geopolitics is by necessity, uh, by definition, a, a very qualitative discipline. So it becomes very hard to quantify what the impact, you know, you can talk through all the scenarios and assign probabilities, but figuring out what that's going to do to a currency or rates or stock markets is is really hard. So you have to spend a lot of time tracking the psychology of the market around those events. We're talking about Russia, but we're also thinking about Turkey. I find this fascinating that Recep Tayyip Erdogan is kind of offering himself as a mediator in the conflict, Russian-Ukraine conflict. At the same time, the Turkish economy is suffering. I think I'm right in saying the trade deficit hit the worst on record in August, right? So 
where do you look to in that scenario? Should should Turkey stay out of the way? What's going on there? Yeah, there are a lot of moving parts, and uh, Turkey is on track to, to post a record current account deficit this year. It probably is going to be around $50 billion. And uh, the other problem they have is that their FX reserves are very low. Erdogan is forcing the central bank to keep interest rates low. They're at 12% when inflation is 80%, and they're looking to cut more. Uh, so, you know, and the Turkey, energy markets are a big factor in this, right? Absolutely. The, the energy import bill is, is the biggest driver in that current account deficit and, uh, and the high cost of energy. So Erdogan is in a very weak position economically, and he's tried to sort of balance his support for Ukraine and Russia and, you know, play that sort of impartial mediator. But he frequently gets caught on the side. And then you've got Russia that has faced unprecedented unified sanctions from the West and really looking to, to figure out ways to, to do foreign trade and investment around those sanctions. And they're trying to do it in Turkey. And Turkey really needs the money, but the US really does not want uh, <laughs> Russia to subvert those sanctions. Yeah. So it, it's really sort of becoming a, a pressure point in the confrontation between Russia and the West. So what, just broadly defined, how, how do you think, how do you guys think about Turkey as a place to invest? Is it just too too risky at this point you need more stability whether it's from the government or just the, f the fiscal side it, it's it's wrong on all fronts okay. you have a lot of political instability and increasing repression uh so you know it doesn't score very w uh, well on policy predictability and stability uh monetary policy is a disaster the central bank's balance sheet is a mess uh fiscal policy is becoming increasingly uh not credible um, so it, yep. it's very hard to see how anyone would want to firm, uh, make some firm commitments there until you see some serious policy changes. When we consider emerging markets, how has the, the war in Ukraine prompted the market to reshuffle where it, it places capital because of all the interlink between these nations and also, of course, because of the effects of sanctions? Right. Well, uh, the big impact initially, of course, you know, there's risk off whenever you have any sort of geopolitical uncertainty, you get this broad risk off and emerging markets are always fronts in the fire line. But then you had this uh, price shock into commodities because uh, particularly on uh, grain and wheat and on the oil side, that's largely subsided since then. But then you have these lingering sort of regional problems. A uh, great example is uh, the cutoff of uh, Russian gas into Europe. Um, particularly on the emerging markets front, uh, you have the Central European economies, most notably Hungary, very vulnerable to that. So it, it, there is a global impact in terms of the, you know, the commodities and the risk off sentiment. But then there's sort of this regional impact that you have to sort of suss out uh, on a country by country basis. And again, back to Turkey, higher energy prices really hurts them on the external account. Where are, given all these uncertainties in the backdrop, whether it's interest rates, monetary policy, geopolitical issues, the last place I'd want to be is emerging markets. <laughs> but you have to do it for a living. So what, where are you and your clients kind of doing work and seeing opportunities in emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, the, the strong dollar is killing yep. EM currencies. Uh, higher rates and tighter liquidity globally are, are really uh, tightening up their access to credit. I think at this point, it's it's a relative value story. So you look for places, um, you know, where they're that, that could outperform others. And so, you know, you have the Czech Republic, which has, you know, a stronger balance sheet uh, and, um, you know, a very stable currency because of the central bank policies. You know, I think that 
uh, has a really strong chance of outperforming Hungary. You know, if you look in LATAM, terms of trade probably favor countries like uh, Colombia that are oil exporters over places like Chile, which are very exposed to copper prices, which have really taken a plunge uh, in recent months. So it, it's really sort of selective and it's more relative value than just, hey, let's expand our exposure to EM as a whole. What's the biggest catalyst for emerging markets in 2023? I think I'm going to say two very interrelated things, which is how long this dollar strength persists. And uh, I don't think it's so much a story about what the Fed does, you know, if it's 50 or 75 in an individual meeting, but the overall structurally higher set of dollar rates that you're seeing. I, I think um, those two, and then I would say secondarily is the extent to which inflation starts to normalize globally and this inflation shock recedes. All right, Nick, that's great stuff. Nick Stadmiller, Director, Emerging Markets at Medley Global Advisors, joining us live in studio. So he gets a gold star for being in studio. We appreciate that. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Today's Focus on Munis is brought to you by Build America Mutual. When the market is volatile, BAM provides stability. BAM-insured municipal bonds deliver default protection, value preservation, and a durable rating. Ask your broker about BAM insured municipal bonds. That see, Ed, that's a, a read that Matt Miller just loves to read. He goes all off on the BAM thing, and it's it's kind of embarrassing, but it's his thing. So I and I'll not, leave him to it. Yeah, I did not do it justice. <laughs> uh, Joe Mysack joins us here. Joe does all things municipals uh, for Bloomberg News. Joe, we're you know we're all kind of looking at the images and the video of the terrible tragedy down in Florida. Is it an issue for the municipal bond market when you see that type of disruption and destruction? Destruction, and you know, not just Florida, it's, it's kind of, it's back out in the ocean, it's winding up, it's going to South Carolina, Yep. more destruction there. But in answer to your question, it's very surprising to most people that natural disasters tend not to be a credit issue for municipalities, for states and municipalities, purely because the insurance money, you know, following the, the waves, following the actual water that comes in, comes waves of cash. Insurance money, federal assistance, uh, rebuilding efforts get underway. So, yes, you know, it's a tremendous tragedy, tremendous destruction, and then the, this tremendous renewal, if you will. So, unless a municipality goes kind of out of business, uh, the, the debt service is completely intact, things occur mm. um, just as they normally would, and natural disasters are really just uh, you know, something that the market shrugs off. The only thing that I could think of otherwise is, uh, you know, a couple of those towns that were destroyed by wildfire in California. Yep. They missed debt service because the whole town was wiped out and records were lost and things like that. But otherwise, no, it's hmm, not really a credit okay. event. Interesting. All right, you've got, let's move from South Florida up to 
preppy island of Nantucket. Are you trying to tell me, Joe, that Nantucket is going into the bond market? Are they going to do an issuance here? They did. They sold. They sold. They this did week. do it. All yes, right. they sold this week, and uh, most of the issue is for affordable housing because Nantucket, like uh, near nearby island Martha's Vineyard, uh, like. I want to say Aspen, yep. I think Vale as well. Uh, these are places that people love and they're charming and they're enchanting and there's no room for the people who are essential service providers to live. They're being priced out of their own homes. So ah. you know, you're seeing police and fire, nurses and teachers. Uh, that's who's going to benefit from this affordable housing bond issue. And Nantucket, let's face it, and Martha's Vineyard too, there's really, you, you can't say, well, you'll have to commute in from the suburbs right. because you just have you know, the ocean. <laughs> well, so, this was so astonishing. In your column, which you wrote beautifully, by the way, you paint an idyllic picture of Nantucket, Massachusetts, <laughs> but ultimately they're issuing this debt for affordable housing. And in the prospectus, they're very much not focused on affordable housing. They're just trying to sell the vision of the town. Well, yes, and it's you know the, the kind of the the amazing factoid uh, I, I think I discovered there was that the uh, median house price on uh, Nantucket is three million dollars. Wow, <laughs> interesting. Which, so who, which is, you know, so who insane. funds it? Who pays this bond? Like, is it going to be? Uh, property taxes or is it going to be this is a general taxes? obligation bond so full faith and credit uh of nantucket uh but you know that includes all the money they bring in including this uh tax on uh, hotel rooms yeah that size taxes and that has that's been a booming since the uh, pandemic because people really wanted to get out there and they couldn't go abroad they couldn't you know uh go to London like we were talking about. Yep. So like, well, let's, you know, go domestically. So Nantucket, let's go there. So mm. that, the money's been coming in over the gunnels. If I were gonna ever buy a house in Nantucket and I'm not in the market, you have to factor in the cost of an ownership of a plane. Because there's no way you're doing that ferry thing. That's a crazy trip. So if I can't afford a plane and a house, I'm not buying the house. What do you think of that strategy? Not a boat? Come on. No. Boats, yes. No, no. I need to take off from, you know, like Marstown and just jet up to Nantucket. If I can't afford that, if that doesn't fit into You're my talking budget. talking about a little propeller plane or what? Yeah, I could do that. But no, I, I probably need a jet because the weather gets <laughs> kind of funky up there, you know. So um, the last person, you know, John F. Kennedy Jr. flew a plane up there, a propeller. That didn't work out so well. Well, no. All right. So Nantucket in the bond market, raising money. I'm assuming it's a top-rated bond, right? Oh, AAA. AAA. It's rated AAA because Nantucket has the money coming in. And they also got money from the uh, federal government, the ARPA funds and things like that. So uh, Nantucket's doing very well. And these bonds sold at uh, very uh, you know good prices for them. So they'll be able to... Uh, uh, you know, the, the building of affordable housing is something that they have been doing. So it's not as though this is brand new. They have been trying to keep up with this. And yet the demand is fabulous because they haven't sold enough. They haven't built enough affordable housing. All right. Joe, good stuff. That, why, no, that's it? That's it. Joe Meisig, editor of Bloomberg Brief, our weekly overview of all things municipal bond. We go from Mall of America in Secaucus, New Jersey, 
all the way up to Nantucket for affordable housing. The municipal bond market is everywhere, and it is triple tax-free. Ed has no idea about the U.S. municipal bond market, but we'll, we'll school him on it here. It's triple tax-free. That's what I know. Let's check in with Dr. Quincy Crosby, Chief Global Strategist for LPL Financial. LPLA is the stock symbol to put into your Bloomberg terminal. I'm looking at the, it's a $17 billion market cap company. Stock's up 39% year to date. Go figure. One of the big, strong names out there. Uh, Quincy, thanks so much for joining us here. Why is your company stock up? Because it's a great company. We're the largest, <laughs> <laughs> we're the largest independent uh, uh, broker dealer in the country. And it's also growing at, um, at a rapid pace and very well managed, as you can imagine, in this environment to see the uh, share price up, uh, wow. you know, in that trajectory. Yeah. I, you can't say better, better. It's it's also a great company to work All for. All right, good stuff. All right. Yeah. We got a little green on the screen today, but this has yeah. been just a brutal year. What's the view from LPL Financial with your stock up 38%? What are you guys thinking about this market? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a market that is, is, is choppy. There's tremendous uncertainty. And, you know, what's interesting about this is we, we've seen the volatility index climb, the VIX. Uh, as the Fed began raising rates, the VIX stayed fairly dormant, fairly quiet. Uh, it was understood what the Fed was doing. It was, you know, clear. But what has happened as uh, other central banks are raising the rates and as their concerns grow that the uh, Fed's um, aggressive campaign may be pushing us into a recession and also, uh, you know, just what happened in the U.K., that perhaps there are other fault lines lurking uh, in the global um, global uh, system, uh, you know, the VIX is, is climbing because there's more uncertainty. There's uncertainty regarding where this is taking us and how does the Fed actually bring us to price stability without, as the proverbial, breaking something. Uh, you know, what happened in the U.K. with the um, pension fund issues and the Bank of England having to go out and, um, you know, buy bonds again – it, it could happen anywhere, and it does, and it does when financial conditions tighten. So that's the uncertainty. And then also, you know, we're going into third quarter earnings season, and the questions are, what are those companies saying? Not only their bottom line, but their margins, but what's the guidance? How are they seeing things? Are they all going to be giving us the same guidance as FedEx did on that Friday that, you know, the market melted down? We don't know. So this is the uncertainty, and we've got to just navigate through this. And it looks as if the market wants to go lower and find a, a, a you know, a, a level that has discounted all of the headwinds, all of the problems. Uh, but, you know, most likely we're not there yet. So that, that's what's going on. We're more defensive. Quincy, in periods of recession, earnings expectations come down, right? Have yeah, earnings exactly. expectations come down enough that we're reflecting that recession risk? Probably not. No, no, no. And that's that's the other, that's the other issue for, for the market. It, it probably hasn't. But until we hear from companies, uh, either before they actually come out and you know uh, have their official uh, earnings call, but perhaps with pre-announcements, we'll have a we'll have a, an understanding of what they are seeing, and the market then has to adjust. And by the way, you know, no one knows if, if there will be a recession. If there is. Will it be a shallow one? Will it be a growth recession or just an earnings recession? The market right now is trying to figure that out. And until it does, expect more chop. 
So, I mean, this Federal Reserve, I mean, are, are you in the camp that says this Federal Reserve is likely to go too far, too fast, too high, and, and in fact, push us into a recession? Uh, that seems to be the consensus. It is. It is the consensus. Uh, clearly, it's the consensus. I mean, they've made it very clear. They don't want to wait and watch to see how you know things are turning out. They want to front load it, and by doing that, at least they have the luxuries. You can see from the from the data, uh, people are still spending. Retail spending is still is still maybe not stellar, but it's still solid. The labor market remains solid, probably too much for the Fed. But the point is. it's not denting the economy in the way they want. Surely the housing market is slowing, but they need rents to come down. That's number one. The second thing is they need food prices to pull back along with gasoline prices, which have obviously started moving back. And they need to have overall uh, the entire economy and demand to decrease, to decrease to the point it's not going to push prices higher. I, I just have to mention, you know, I saw the announcement from Amazon. They're raising uh, wages for those who work in um, factories and the uh, drivers, 19, $19 an hour. Amazon is going to pass that along somewhere along the line. They're not, they're not going to sit there and say, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of this. Somewhere that is going to be passed along to consumers, either to the companies on their platform right. or, or, yeah. So, that's what the Fed is fighting. This is the irony of this whole thing. Yep, the Fed doesn't want to see this price, wage price spiral. It's the difficulty. All right, Quincy, great stuff. Really appreciate uh, getting your insight uh, this morning. Uh, Quincy Crosby, Chief Global Strategist for LPL Financial. Again, it trades on the NASDAQ. LPLA is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg professional service. It's got a 17.7 billion market cap stock up 39%. There's a winner for you in 2022. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.